All right, let's turn together to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're working our way through the Bible, following the story of the Bible to see how prayer develops and how prayer changes as we go through the story. And this morning, we're going to look at Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you don't have your own Bible or don't have one with you and you'd like to use the church Bible in front of you, 1 Samuel 2 is on page 225. Page 225. I'm going to read Hannah's prayer for us. We'll get to a little bit of her backstory here in just a minute, but let's first look at the prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here's what... God's word says to us. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him, Actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I came across a story a couple weeks ago uh, about this couple that had just recently renovated their home. And that sentence by itself doesn't sound super exciting to, to any of you. I mean, because it, people renovate their homes all the time, and there are 127 different shows about it on TV and on streaming services right now that you could watch all day, every day for the rest of your life if you wanted to. But this couple had bought this old house in West Virginia, and most people... When they saw this house, they saw just an old farmhouse that had maybe some cool historical features to it. This is what it looked like on the outside. You'll see on the the screen behind me there. So, I mean, nothing super exciting. You can tell it's an old house. If old houses are your thing, that might be be pretty cool. Um, But this particular couple had heard from a few historians that there might actually be more to this house than meets the eye. Some historians believed that there was actually an old log fort from the 1800s inside this house. And the couple said, well, we got to buy this house and we got to find out. So they bought this house, they started renovating, and they found out those historians were right. When they first bought the house, here's an example of what it looked like on the inside. So just normal stuff, all this stuff was in the house when they bought it. And so they start doing the work, and they begin to uncover, rip all the plaster and drywall off the walls, and they start to see this behind the walls and find all these old logs 
hand-hewn logs in the inside of this house. Some of you that don't like history, you're like, this is the lamest thing anyone could get up and talk about on a Sunday morning. Why did I get out of bed? So they start to clean it up, a ton of work, a ton of work. They start to clean it up, and it ends up looking like this when they're, when they're done and restore it to it. There's so much stuff that they found inside the house, clothes and photos and artifacts from generations of a family that had lived here from the 1800s through both world, world wars all the way to modern day. They had a metal detector out in the yard and found gobs of stuff out in the yard, stuff that is, I think, is super cool. Maybe you don't think is super cool, but keys and coins and tools and knives and weapons and all kinds of stuff from years and years and years of history. When you first look at that house, you don't know that whole story. You just think, well, it's just an old house that nobody's really taken good care of. And you might be sitting there thinking, I could have watched HGTV at home. Why did I come here? Well, my point is this is that many times in life, how you see something makes all the difference. Your perspective on something makes all the difference. Not everyone saw what that couple saw when they first looked at that house. But that couple saw value and worth that wasn't obvious to everyone else. They saw something more that everyone else didn't see. How they saw it changed how how they lived, how they thought about it. And as we go through this series on prayer, that's one of our goals is to, to change how we see prayer because how we see prayer shapes how we pray. How you see God shapes how you pray. How you see the world shapes how you pray. How you see this book we call the Bible shapes how you pray and if you pray. Your perspective makes all the difference in prayer and I think that is shouting off the page to us from Hannah's prayer. And from Hannah's prayer, we're going to see this simple truth, but it, it's, it has so much truth that we need to think about in it, but this simple sentence that what you see shapes how you pray. What you see shapes how you pray. What you ask God for, and whether or not you pray at all, is shaped by what you see right now. And you and I could look at the same circumstance or same situation or same person and see two different things. And we could think about God and think two different things. What you see about God is going to determine what you say to God. What you see when you look at your circumstances is going to determine if and how you pray about them. So as we walk through Hannah's story, she has a lot for us to learn. But we're going to look at it this way. We're going to see Hannah's problem, because this is not just some random prayer that she's praying. It's flowing out of some circumstances that the Lord has brought her through. Hannah's problem Hannah's praise, and then Hannah's perspective. Hannah's problem, Hannah's praise, and Hannah's perspective. And in each part, I want us to think about what is Hannah seeing in this moment, and how is that shaping how she prays, and what she prays. So let's, let's start with the background story here, here, and we'll look at Hannah's problem. Hannah's problem. If this is the first time you've read Hannah's prayer, You might think that that prayer that we just read is the prayer of a woman who's had a fairly easy life. She's praising the Lord for a ton of things. She's talking about all these positive, incredible things that the Lord has done. So it can sound like, well, Hannah must have it pretty easy if she can pray like that. But actually, it's quite the opposite of that. 
you get the, the background of this a little bit in chapter 1. And we're going to look at a couple places there in 1 Samuel 1. But just to kind of give you the big zoom out picture, Hannah's story takes place during what's known in Israel as the time of the judges. This was a dark, dark time for the history of the, of the people of Israel. It's summed up by there's this line in the book of Judges that says, in those days, meaning during the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not the kind of banner or theme you want your time to be known for. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king. So it's a time of, because there's this giant leadership hole It's this time of a lot of corruption and a lot of chaos. But keep in mind, though, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Keep in mind, though, the promise God made back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he said, there's going to be one that comes that crushes the head of the serpent, signifying there's going to be one that comes that crushes evil, that crushes corruption, that does away with chaos and brings peace that does away with evil and brings goodness, that does away with brokenness and brings wholeness. That promise, even in the days when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, that promise was still true. That promise hadn't gone anywhere. And it's in this dark and chaotic time that we meet Hannah, and first we meet her husband, Elkanah, and then you learn this about Hannah. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. This is talking about her husband. It says, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And here's a key sentence. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. You're immediately introduced to Hannah's problem. She was unable to have kids. She was barren. I think the way it reads, we could even see it, because she's mentioned first, I think she was likely Elkanah's first wife, and because she was unable to have kids, he gets a second wife. This is not the first time this has happened in the Bible. This happens multiple times as people try to take the Lord's plans in their own hands. But you see how this problem unfolds. Look at verse 3. Things are not easy for her. It says in verse 3, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, pay attention to how Peninnah is described here. Hannah's rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as, she used, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So in this moment, in this time, year after year, when the family would go up to Shiloh to worship the Lord there, year after year, a moment that was a moment of joy and celebration and gladness for everyone else, what was a moment of pain and misery and difficulty for Hannah? Some of you have been in circumstances like this, and maybe you are right now, where you feel like you're surrounded by people that are happy and joyful, 
but you're wondering because of what you're going through and the weight you're carrying and the difficulties you're experiencing, how could anyone be joyful at a time like this? You felt that grief before. You felt that kind of burden before. And this is what Hannah feels year after year after year. And this burden of facing these mocks and insults and glances from Peninnah, It'd be a difficult burden at any time, but it's especially a difficult burden in Hannah's day. Hannah's weeping and sadness are not just for herself, but also because she, and we'll see, she knows the promises of God. And she knows childlessness is a threat to God's promise from our perspective. Because how is one going to come that crushes evil if children are never born? And so there's, this is not just about Hannah, but also how can we expect a Savior if a child is never born? So she carries the weight of all of this on her, and this is where she turns to the Lord in prayer. Look with me at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Notice this prayer is not separate from her problem. It's in the middle of her problem. It's in the middle of this difficulty and these mocks and the way Peninnah's words would just echo in Hannah's head all the time. And she prays and cries out to the Lord and says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. What you see shapes how you pray, and this is the first glimpse we get at what Hannah sees. Notice what she calls the Lord. In verse 11, she calls him, O Lord of hosts. O Lord of hosts. And it's actually not the first time this has come up in this chapter, even in this short part. Even back in verse 3, we saw this man used to go up year after year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. So there's a specific reason the Lord has called this in in this chapter. When she calls him the Lord of hosts, it's, it's teaching us This title of God is teaching us that his control over the universe is full and complete. His sovereignty is universal. It's not just, he's not just in control in one area of the world or over one type of person. He's in control of all things, the Lord of hosts, and his power is unlimited. He's the power of powers. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of hosts. Her faith in the Lord helps her see that the God who made the universe and holds it all together is personally involved in her life. He's not so big and great in a way that separates him from her. She's confident that not only does he control the galaxies, he controls her life too. But notice how she sees herself Look over that prayer in verse 11. What does she call herself? How does she refer to herself twice, three times? What does she say? 
your servant. She prays to the Lord and says, I'm your servant. This is not just spiritual sounding words that Hannah's throwing up there. She means this. She, she says it three times. Oh, Lord, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son. Because she sees God as the all-powerful ruler of the galaxies, she submits her life and her plans to God and his plans. She calls herself his servant. Because she sees who he is and she sees who she is and she's confident that he's concerned with her pain and with her problem. Now, this tells you a lot about what's going on during the time of the judges because as Eli, you saw his name briefly mentioned, Eli was the priest in, in this area and he, he, it tells you he's sitting there by the doorpost of the temple. He sees her praying and she, because she's praying to herself and just kind of mouthing the words of her prayer, he assumes she's drunk. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in her own eyes. And even the priest did not have a good pulse on what real godliness looked like. It's a dark time. But he assumes that she's drunk, and his response to her is not, hey, keep praying to the Lord, keep trusting him. His response to her is, put down the wine. You're drunk. And here's what she says back to him. Let's jump forward to verse 15. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. And I I love this description of prayer. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. It's a great description of prayer in verse 15 pouring out my soul before the Lord. And she says in verse 16, she's been speaking out of her great anxiety and vexation, her great pain, her great distress, her great problem. This is in the midst of her frustration and worry. Do you see how clear her vision of God is in the midst of her own frustration? Oh, Lord of hosts, I'm your servant And yet she's praying out of great anxiety and vexation. The lesson here is that prayer is hard. And prayer has always been hard for God's people. I don't know if we could go back and talk to Hannah. And maybe we could talk to her in heaven one day. We can ask her this. If she felt like praying. She'd probably say, no, but I didn't have anywhere else to go. If I only prayed when I felt like praying, if we only prayed when we felt like praying, we probably wouldn't pray a lot. And just to be totally honest with you, I don't feel like praying all the time. Prayer is hard. And we have a tendency to think, well, if I was better at prayer, it'd be easier And that because it's not easy, there must be something wrong with me or there must be something wrong with God or I must not be saying the right things. But take some encouragement from from Hannah and know that if you struggle to pray and struggle to know what to pray as you endure the problems and pains of life in a fallen world, you're in really good company. God's people of every generation have found prayer hard 
but they've also found it worth it. Because when you see who you're praying to, and when you see who he is and see who you are in light of him, like Hannah does, then you know there's not, not only no other place to go, there's no better place to go than to the Lord. For Hannah, seeing the tension of her home life and the wounds she carried, it didn't mean she couldn't see the Lord's presence in her life. She saw it, even in the midst of her struggle. And then watch how this scene ends. Look with me at verse 17. This is what Eli, the priest, says to her after she explains, I'm I'm not drunk, I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Eli, verse 17, then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then pay attention right here. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You'll remember back when, back in verse 7, where it says, year after year they would go up, and year after year Hannah would face this, and it says, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And now here it says, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. But Hannah still doesn't have a son but her countenance is different. You would expect the story to say, and then the Lord blessed Hannah and she had a son. Then she went her way in her eight and her face was no longer sad. But that's not how it's ordered. Her, her countenance changes before there's even a son in the picture. How, how could that be? She's comforted now, but the Lord hasn't answered her prayer yet. Uh, a pastor by the name of uh, John Onwachekwa, he wrote this book on prayer. It's called Prayer. Really good title if you're looking for it. But he says this, like a prescription, prayer eases our concerns before repairing our circumstances. Like a prescription, prayer eases our concerns before repairing our circumstances. And I think that's what you see with Hannah. Praying helps her see the promises and presence of God. And it comforts her even in her problem, even before her problem is fixed. There's a comfort and confidence about her because she's trusting in the Lord. And I think we have to wrestle with that a little bit because am I only trusting in the Lord if he works things out the way I've prayed for him to work things out? Or is it an unconditional trust in the Lord? Lord, I know you're the Lord of hosts. You're in control of all things. You are good and righteous and perfectly wise. So I trust your will more than I trust my own. And so just knowing the Lord hears her prayer is enough for Hannah because she knows who he is. And this in time is going to lead her to praise. That's our next part, Hannah's praise. Hannah's praise. Sometime after this, the Lord does give Hannah a son. She is able to have a son, and she names him Samuel. And she keeps her vow to the Lord. She had told the Lord, Lord, if you give me a son, I don't think this is a way of twisting God's arm or manipulating the Lord. I think it's just a way of saying, Lord, I want your will to be done, and if your will's done, I'm following you this way. But she keeps her vow to the Lord, and she takes the child to Eli to be with him in the temple. It, can, just think about that for a second. It would not have been easy 
to leave the boy in the temple that you had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for. She's longed for so long to have this son. And now she leaves him in the temple. Don't forget the people that we're reading about in the Bible were humans just like me and you. They weren't riding on some kind of super spiritual wave where they didn't experience the emotions and difficulties that you and I do. Just think about what that would have been like for you. For something that you asked the Lord for for so long and he gives it to you and then you give it back. But the realization of all that is going on leads Hannah to praise the Lord. Let's jump to her prayer in chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah's prayer starts with how she sees the Lord through her own experience. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. She's saying the core of who I am is being caught up in who the Lord is. I see a lot of things in my life right now, Hannah saying, but the biggest thing I see is the power and goodness and grace and mercy of God. And when she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord, horn is a, is a symbol for strength. So she's saying, my strength is in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord. And then a phrase at the end of verse 1 that doesn't really sound very prayer-like. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I don't know if anybody's ever been in a group of people praying and you've heard someone pray that. Lord, our mouths deride our enemies. The only time I've heard something kind of close to that is when in middle school we thought, well, we have to pray before our games because if we don't pray, we for sure won't win. And so one day one of our friends who was like the designated prayer on the team, he prayed, Dear God, let us kill him. Amen. And then we ran out of the locker room, pumped out of our minds. But this is not the kind of thing that we pray a lot. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I don't think she is being vindictive towards Peninnah. And I don't think that because of what she's rejoicing in. You got to see the whole sentence. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, Lord. She doesn't say, my mouth derides my enemies because I can't wait to see their downfall. No, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She's praising God for delivering her from her pain, for rescuing her to fulfill his promises. God has completely reversed the circumstances of her life, and she praises him in front of the people that taunted her, in front of the people that mocked her. In this perspective, this, this sight that she has of the Lord leads her to praise him for even more things. Look at verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She's saying there's no God like the Lord. There's no God like Yahweh. There's no God who is 
faithful and full of steadfast love and gracious and who keeps his promises. He is holy. He is perfect and set apart. He is above and beyond us. He is the rock, meaning he's our strength. He is our provider. He is our protector. She'll say later in the prayer that it's not by might that men prevail. So she's saying, it's not my strength that did this. It's not my strength that carried me through this. The Lord is my rock. He is our strength. And then she gives us even a little insight on what we can learn from her experience. Let's look at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Not only is the Lord our holy and almighty provider, He is also all-knowing, and he is the one who knows and judges our hearts. Can you imagine what kind of comfort that truth brought to Hannah in the midst of Peninnah's glances and words to her? This isn't stuff that all of a sudden Hannah just found out about the Lord. These are truths that Hannah carried with her through all those years of suffering, and now they're coming out in her prayer. And when Peninnah was saying those sharp things to her, and insulting her and mocking her and giving her those glances, she could think, no, my God is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The Lord knows my heart. The Lord knows Penina's heart. The Lord knows my faith. This is in his hands. So for, for us, this leaves no room for boasting. None of us are the captain of our own fate. None of us will be our own judge in the end. None of us know more about ourselves than God knows about us. So we humble ourselves before this perfect and all-powerful God, and we pray to him, and we learn from these truths that carried Hannah through her suffering, that the truths she's praying in 1 Samuel 2 are truths she believed and leaned on in 1 Samuel 1. Tim Chester, in his book on on prayer, said this, that the more we know of God, the more our hearts are tuned to praise him. The more we know of God, the more our hearts are tuned to praise him. So these truths that carried her through her sorrow and through her suffering are now truths that she praises God for. So where this hit me this week was, do I, do we see God clear enough to praise him on good days and bad days? Or do we have a view of ourselves, a view of God, a view of life that only allows us to truly praise him on good days? And you might think, well, Hannah's prayer was answered. Of course she can praise God. Well, I don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's that easy. Do you and I see God clearly enough? Do we know enough about God to praise him at all times? Are we aware of our constant dependence on him. What you see shapes how you pray. So this part of Hannah's prayer invites all of us to praise God at all times in all circumstances. Do we make time to praise God in specific ways for who he is and what he's done in our lives? Even throughout the day, I firmly believe 
praying to God in just short little snippets throughout the day is, is a great way for us to, to cultivate prayer. It doesn't just have to be, well, if I didn't spend an hour in the morning praying, I'm horrible at prayer. Yes, we want to set aside time to pray, but also in between meetings or in between classes or when you're driving somewhere or riding somewhere, there's opportunity to praise God and to think on him. If we created, I don't want to do this for myself. So maybe that's hypocritical. I don't want to do this for myself. But if we created a pie chart of our prayers, what percentage of it would be given to praise and thankfulness to God? And what percentage would be given to asking and requesting things from God? God loves when we ask things from him. But in the context of when we praise him for things. Even when we, like Hannah, are pouring out our soul before the Lord, do we still see reasons to praise him? Even when the, the words and glances of, from other people or the difficulties of our own circumstances or just the debilitating grief we feel or the unknown things in front of us this week because of appointments or diagnoses or whatever it may be, even in those, do we see God clearly enough to praise him? And I don't mean at all in some kind of cheap, superficial way. That's not Hannah at all, but in a way that's deeply rooted in his truth and who he is. We always have plenty of reasons to praise and thank God. And I think this this leads us to, Hannah's, Hannah's praise leads us to Hannah's perspective. This is the last part we'll see this morning. Hannah's perspective In the second part of her prayer, Hannah zooms out from her own experience and sees her life in light of what God has done for people throughout history. She has this view of her life, not that makes her life seem really big, but that makes her view of God really big, and she sees her life in the middle of it. I'll show you what I mean when we see this list of reversals that Hannah starts listing out. They start in verse 4. Verse 4, pay attention to how, how Hannah is explaining these reversals, how things, tables have turned, things have switched. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. What Hannah's doing here is she is recounting the truth that God accomplishes his purposes and carries out his promises in ways that often don't match our expectations. And in ways that often don't match what we see. And what the Lord sees in what he's doing is not always the same as what we see in what he's doing. We see, well, it looks like these people always succeed and these people always get what they want and these people always thrive in life. But the Lord says... No, I'm bringing about a different thing. I'm bringing about something better for you. Because she says, the strong lose their strength, but the feeble gain strength. The full are now hungry, but the hungry are now satisfied. And she sees her own story in that bigger picture. Did you, did you pick up on what she said in verse 5, the end of verse 5? The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Hannah did not have seven kids at this point. Seven is, 
a number that represents wholeness, that represents completeness. She's saying, I'm now whole and complete in the Lord because of what he's done. And this continues in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Each reversal that Hannah mentions is evidence of God's work to reverse the curse of sin in the world. On like a micro level and a macro level, Hannah is saying, my God is the one who comes and reverses the curse of sin in the world. Who reverses the curse of brokenness in the world. He replaces emptiness with fullness. He replaces brokenness with wholeness. He replaces sin with forgiveness and mercy. That's Genesis 3.15 echoing all the way forward to Hannah's life. All this started with the birth of her son Samuel, but she never even mentions Samuel in this prayer. It's remarkable how little she talks about her own experience here, her own circumstance. Her prayer is on a much bigger canvas at this point. She says, my life is just one example of what God is doing everywhere, what he's doing all over the world, all for his people And because starting in Genesis 3, God promised to bring his salvation into the world. And Hannah sees what God has done in her life as one example of the pattern of how God always works in the world. He alone can replace weakness with strength. He alone can replace longing with satisfaction. He alone can replace death with life. This is what he does. This is what he has always done and he always will do. And as Hannah sees how God has already accomplished his promises, it gives her confidence to ask God to keep carrying out his promises, to keep accomplishing his promises. And as we come to what I think is the high point of this prayer Surprisingly, you would think it would end with, and my son Samuel. But it's not at all about Samuel. It's actually about something that I think is completely unexpected. Look at verse 9, the very end of her prayer. He will guard, talking about the Lord, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. And here, here's verse 10 that I think is very surprising. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He will give strength to his king. What king? This is the time of judges. Remember, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But Hannah says, the Lord is going to give strength to his king. God has hinted at this in his words to Abraham. God has hinted at this in his words to Isaac and to Moses. And once again, we see the heart of prayer crying out to God to fulfill his promises. Hannah, is a, Hannah has a hint. I'm not saying she understands everything here But Hannah has some glimpse, some hint, some hunch that God is about to keep his promises to give Israel a king. Now, it's not going to be smooth and easy and perfect. First King Saul, he's not going to last very long. 
But then David's going to come, King David. And it's in that that we see Hannah's story is part of a bigger story, the story of a king, that she sees all these reversals happening and the ultimate reversal of the curse of sin being done away with and death being replaced with life, that's going to come through God's appointed king. And you see the word in the end of verse 10, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. The Hebrew word behind our English word anointed there is, he will exalt the horn of his Messiah. Jesus Christ. That God in his sovereign goodness has so shaped the life of this woman in this one family to bring about the birth of Samuel. And Samuel wasn't going to be the king. But through Samuel, God appointed King David, and down the family line of King David, it eventually leads us to the ultimate king and savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the canvas, the big picture that Hannah's prayer and life is being written on. In the day when there was no king in Israel, God was working through the prayers of this suffering woman to bring about the promised king who would rescue the whole world. When we talk about prayer as crying out to the Lord to accomplish his purposes, I'm not saying, well, we have to say the exact right words to get God to do what we want. It's actually not about God, us saying the right words to get God to do what we want. It's about cultivating the right heart in us so that our wants become his wants so that our will matches his will, so that our perspective, what we see, matches what he sees. Praying according to God's promises and not according to our preferences or our circumstances anchors our soul to the goodness of God in every situation. I'm not promising, if we pray like Hannah, God's going to do for you like what he did for Hannah. Hannah would not promise you that. Hannah would say, no, my God keeps his promises. And in this chaotic day I'm living in, when there's no king, the priests don't know what they're talking about. God's bringing about another king and another priest who's going to be perfect and holy, and he's going to save his people completely. Hannah sees, and her prayer teaches us to see, that God's work in her life is about more than just her life. Can't we all kind of fall into that tunnel vision of only seeing my circumstances as connected to me and not how what God's doing in my life is affecting other people? You and I are not in the center. And this is not just the the adage that the parents always say to the kids, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. This is much deeper, much more layered than that, that the Lord is at the center and what he's doing in my life and your life may not be mainly about us. What he was doing in Hannah's life was not mainly about Hannah. What he was doing in Hannah's life leads to the reason we can stand in here and worship together. Leads to the reason that there's salvation for us because God is the central part at each part of Hannah's story. And what God is doing in each life and in the world is first and foremost about King Jesus. And what we see shapes how we pray. The more we pray, the better we're going to see the work of Jesus in our lives. The more we see Jesus in our lives, the more we're going to pray and praise him 
and see our lives on this big canvas of what the Lord of hosts is doing in this world.